Amen and amen. Only Jesus, the only name to remember. Amen? amen? Grateful for that song, but also grateful for this series. We've been going through the Gospel of John this whole year, except for a little time off a few weeks ago. And we're going to, uh, just systematically going through uh, John. We're in John 12 today. We'll look at that in a minute. We're going to finish up the Gospel of John the last Sunday in November, Lord willing. Uh, but we look forward to moving in this direction. But we've been looking at this topic of only Jesus. And then the subtitle is Seeing the Savior in a Selfie World because we are a self-centered, selfish people. And so we want our focus and everything to be upon one person, only Jesus. Not us, but only Jesus. Amen? And so we come to chapter 12 today, and we're looking at this idea of this glorious juncture. Now, maybe you don't use the word juncture too often in your household, uh, so let me help you with that just a little bit. Juncture is a particular point in time. It's also a place where things join together, uh, and it could also be when, when history, like, like for instance, it could be when, when uh, the history was altered, so at a certain point things were changed after that fact after that thing took place. Well, thinking about that idea of this glorious juncture in history, uh, there were there times when history was altered by things that had taken place throughout history. So, of course, I did what anybody would do. I did a Google search about the top, top uh, significant or important events in human history. And when you do that, you find all kinds of lists, and some of them duplicated each other, but you know, some had the top 10 events, top 25, top 100. And so looking at those, some of those events that were considered things that altered all of history included things like wars, you know, like a, a World War II, uh, the Korean War, those kinds of wars, but also revolutions such as uh, the American Revolution and different things like the French Revolution. Uh, then there were things that were sicknesses that changed the history. The plagues was one of them. Uh, also inventions were things that they said really altered history. Inventions like the alphabet, inventions like the wheel, inventions like the industrial machinery, and even inventions like weaponry. These things shaped and changed all of history. And in, in looking at those lists, when I was doing some of that research, there were a few, not many, but there were a few that also included this in things, times, or uh, things that happened that altered history, and they would include some, not all, would include the birth of Jesus. Well, now, we agree with that, right? And we know that the birth of Jesus certainly was something that altered history. As a matter of fact, how we tell time by way of a, a B.C. and A.D., it, it's a, obviously one of the most important things that happened, the important birth in all of history was Jesus, because time folds around Jesus, B.C. and A.D. And where I would say that I truly believe that this is the most important event in all of history when Jesus came as the Son of God, became flesh, and, and dwelt among us. That is the most important event in all of history. Can I get a witness? Amen? But I think that even beyond that, there's something more that is even the most significant event that took place in all of history. And I believe that you would move forward 33 years from Jesus' birth around that time and go to the cross. Because the cross has to be the most significant event in all of history. Because had it not been what took place on the cross and at the empty tomb, Jesus' birth would have not been important at all. Amen? And so we know that it is significant that what took place at the cross and at the empty tomb. So when we come to today's scripture, we see that Jesus Christ is the glorious juncture. That what he did on the cross 
at this point in time, it changed everything for all of humanity. And so today's scripture continues where we left off last week in the end of uh, verse 26 in chapter 12. Where Jesus, uh, just before that, had indicated that the hour has come. And he is speaking, of course, of his death as a grain of wheat that falls into the ground, dies, and brings forth much fruit. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to pick up in verse 27. I'm going to read for you verses 36, and we're going to camp out in those verses, even though the, the, we're going to deal with sort of the end of the chapter as well. And we're going to see more of this hour that Jesus spoke of. The hour has come. The hour that has come. And we're going to see the one who goes there for us. And, of course, we know that it is Jesus the glorious juncture in time, and the history has changed for mankind forever from that point forward. Well, in honor and reverence to the Word of God, if you'd please stand, I'm going to read verses 27 through 36 of John uh, chapter 12. Even though we're going to either we'll deal with that through verse 50, we're just going to read verses 27 through 36, chapter 12, today. God's Word says this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And this he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. That he who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And these things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts and lives. Lord, we come before your throne this morning, and we recognize that we come before your throne based only upon the merit of Jesus and not our own merit. That We come into your presence not because of any good thing which we have done, but what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We thank you for the blood of Calvary that gives us access to come before you and to lay our petitions before you, to lay our intercessions, our requests before you, and know that we have audience with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our creator, because of Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray now that as we come to this time in our service, as we break open the word of God together, the Lord, you would illuminate the passage to each of us here today. Give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. To see you, Lord Jesus, as that glorious juncture and what that means for us. And for those who may not know you as Lord and Savior, may this be that hour of salvation where you open the spiritually blind eyes and open the deaf ears that are spiritually deaf. And Lord, we pray for those of us who do know you as Savior and Lord, may it be a time of reaffirming and renewing and being uh, rekindled in our faith, applying it to our lives and living that out daily. And Lord, we do so for all your glory and honor and praise. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth, meditation, my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And you see in your bulletin, if you picked up a bulletin today, you have the outline there. And we're going to go through this outline as we look at the glorious juncture. If you don't have the 
the bulletin. You can uh, look in your app, the MPBC Life app, and we've got the outline there for you to fill in the blanks. And we want to see this idea of who Jesus is as the glorious juncture, picking up here in John 12. And the first thing that we see here are these two things that meet in Jesus is where horror and glory meet. Where horror and glory meet. Now let's look again at the first couple of verses, what we read already here in verse 27 and verse 28. When Jesus says these words, remembering that he's, he's talked about to the, the Son of Man should be glorified, the grain of wheat falls on the ground. And so he's pointing to the cross, remember? And so he says this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And as we look at that first verse there, in verse 27 today, this is Jesus who is talking. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, who knows all things, who speaks and the winds and the waves obey him. Okay? Y'all got what I'm coming? You see what I'm saying here? And he says, my soul is troubled. Now, what does that mean, my soul is troubled? The word troubled, depending upon you know, what you're looking at in, in the commentaries, but most everybody says that the word troubled means agitated, in anguish, or horrified. And so here is God in the flesh who says that his soul is troubled, in anguish, is horrified. And just, just think of that, okay? God is horrified at something. Jesus is... In human form, as God in flesh is horrified at something. So what is it that's troubling him? And remember, as we said already, Jesus is continuing his discussion about the cross. So we know that this is what he's talking about, that the hour has come and the seed must fall into the ground. And indeed, the rest of John, as we're in John 12, and the rest of John deals with the week of the passion of Christ. We may think about, man, the crucifixion so far away because we're looking at so many chapters down the road. But for Jesus, this is the same week. Okay, so he's looking at the same week of what's about to take place just a few days from now. And so he's looking at the cross. And so here is the king who knows all things. And as he knows all things, it tells us that he is horrified or troubled. And as we if we're honest, when we look at this, we have to admit that, you know, that kind of troubles us, doesn't it? I mean, that kind of disturbs us a little bit that the king of glory is horrified by something. But in reality, instead of this disturbing us, it instead should overwhelm us with gratitude and awe and praise and worship. And I'll explain why here in a moment. As we think about what is it that Jesus is saying here that he's horrified about, he's troubled. What is the horror that Jesus sees? There's several options here that I think that we can look at. And the first one is, is it, is it the horror of death itself? Because Jesus, who is God, knows what is going to take place. And so in the deity, knowing what's going to take place, also in his humanity, knowing what he's going to endure. Had he not been fully human, he could not have died. Indeed, he knows that he's going to die. And in his, in his deity, Jesus knew what was going to take place. And in his humanity, he would endure one of the most horrific, cruel painful deaths known to man at that time. And Jesus would indeed endure that death. He would deal with the horror of the pain and the suffering and the death that was to come. And if you think about who Jesus is and what he's able to do, 
Jesus who spoke and blind eyes could see. Jesus spoke and Lazarus rose from the dead. Jesus spoke and the wind and the waves listened to his voice and did what he said. This is the same Jesus where all of creation responds to him. Don't you know that Jesus could have spoken while he was on the cross and spoke to his nerve endings and said, let there be no pain, and there had been no pain. But that's not what Jesus did. Indeed, he would suffer all of the cruelty and all of the horror and all the pain, and he would die, and it would be horrific. But yet something says to me that this was not the horror the agitation or the anguish that was troubling Jesus. If it wasn't that, then maybe it was the horror of sin. Because remember that Jesus is perfect, and Jesus had never touched sin. Sin had never touched Jesus. He had never been tainted with sin. But he who knew no sin, the Bible tells us, would become sin for us. So maybe that's the horror that's what's troubling him here. So the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 this very thing. that says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what, what's, what's going to happen is Jesus is looking ahead to that week is that he would bear the world's sin. He knows this. He would bear the world's sins. And in an instant, he would have the sins of the universe poured upon him so is it this sin where he'd never been tainted by sin and the horror of that sin being upon him that causes him to be troubled is it the horror of the pain of death is it the horror of this sin or is it the horror thirdly of the of him absorbing the wrath of God because that's what he will do on the cross of Calvary you see, he would become Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, would become a curse for us. Because, listen, because of our sin, we are under a curse. Because of what took place in the Garden of Eden, all of humanity is under the curse, meaning that we all deserve to die because we are all sinners. And so we have this penalty of death on each of us, and God's wrath must be vindicated. It must come. And so God's wrath towards sin, since he is a holy God, God's wrath against sin is just. God's wrath is right. God's wrath is deserved. But it would be Jesus who would endure the wrath of God upon himself. Y'all with me this morning? Now, this is a little deep, but I want you to follow along, okay? I don't want you to miss anything. Jesus would endure this wrath of God. In Galatians 3.13, the Bible tells us that Christ, Jesus Christ, has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so what Jesus does is he absorbs all of the wrath of God for sin once for all. So, so is it the horror of death? Is it the horror of sin? Is it the horror of him absorbing all the wrath of God? Or is it fourthly, is it the horror of separation from God? Now you think about this. God the Father, God the Son, the Spirit, they're all together for all of eternity. Jesus had enjoyed continual, perpetual intimacy as God, creating the universe together. Never in all of eternity been separated. 
And yet we think about in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that intimacy between Jesus and the Father where he would pray, Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa, Father. And yet on the cross we know that Jesus will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so there is this horror of God the Father turning his back on Jesus because Jesus is now sin. He has taken the sin upon himself. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God, which is the separation from him. And Jesus will have to deal with the separation of God. This would be the horror of all horrors for Jesus. This would be what troubles him. This would be hell. This would be what troubled, what agitated, what horrified Jesus. And with this horror, when you, you, can, you can couple in all the other things that he knows that's going to take place, whether it's the horrific pain and the suffering that he's going to face, the, the horror of all the sin coming upon himself, or, or horror of absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve, or, absor or, or being separated from God. When you put all that together, what is it that Jesus does when faced with this horror? We see what he says here. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus says, even though it is horrific, and even though my soul is troubled, even though my soul is horrified at what is to happen, nevertheless, I will fulfill your purpose that you brought me to this hour, that I came to this hour, Father, glorify your name. Jesus would fulfill his purpose. Oh, praise the name of Jesus. Amen? It is the place, Jesus at the cross, is the place where horror meets glory. Okay? It's where horror and glory meet. And so he fulfills his purpose here in the horrific manner of the cross to glorify the Father. Jesus is that glorious juncture where horror and glory meet is at the cross. He would endure, now listen, don't miss this. He, Jesus, would endure the horror for the glory of God. And let me just go a step further and say this, don't miss this, is that Jesus would take the horror that you deserve and that I deserve so we wouldn't have to. And he would do it all. For the glory of God. Amen. He took what we deserved in the horror. And so he says, Father, glorify your name. The glory. So glorify your name. What does that mean? Well, a good way to think of what it means to glorify is to think of a spotlight. To glorify, to spotlight, to glorify who God is means to spotlight who God is. And so how then, if Jesus is to glorify your name, looking to the cross of what is coming, he's, going to be he's horrified by what he sees, but nevertheless, I'm going to fulfill the purpose because I'm going to glorify your name. What is it that Jesus is spotlighting about the name of God? What is it that he is spotlighting in the Father? What is he spotlighting in who God is? How do we see God spotlighted or God glorified in the horrific cross? Well, what we see in the horrific cross is we see a God who is gracious. Amen? We see a God who is loving. We see a God who is calling. We see a God who takes the initiative, sending his son for us to take our place on the cross so that we can be reconciled to him. 
And that's what Jesus says, I'm glorifying. That's my purpose, to glorify your name. And beloved, listen, when we then trust this Jesus by faith, the purpose of Jesus to glorify the Father, to glorify God, becomes our purpose as well. Amen? So that now that we have been changed by the gospel and the horror that Jesus took in our place, now horror and glory meet. We no longer face the horror, but we now ought to bring glory to God in all things. Amen? He created us to bring glory to Him, to bring glory to God. So, so we are to live each day with purpose, to glorify God, to spotlight God. The word glorify comes from the, the, the word glory, doxa, in the Greek root. It refers to a brightness or beauty or even fame. So in other words, our lives, our very lives are to spotlight the Lord. Remember, we're seeing the, self, the Savior in a selfie world. It's not about us. It's all about Him, right? And so we, our lives are to spotlight the Lord. Our lives are to re reveal the glory of God in us and through us. Our lives are to bring fame to Him, not to us. And all that we do is to point to Him. Y'all with me this morning? Come on, let me know that you're here, all right? I mean, I'm working up a sweat and I'm sitting down, all right? <laughs> So one thing that I've learned over the past four weeks as I've had this ball and chain on my ankle, you learn things, all right, uh, when, th when, you're, when your life is sort of different because of things you have to do. And one thing that I have learned over these past four weeks is that you have to think about every step you take. Y'all know what I'm talking about. If, you, if you've never been on crutches, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm just telling you. So you have to think as you're walking along. You have to think out your plan. You have to think about your path. And you say, is the path clear? Is everything clear in the path of toys out of the way, books out of the way, all kinds of stuff? Is your path clear? And then what do I need to do to get from here to there? Am I going to need to stop? Am I going to need to get somebody to help me? You know, how am I going to get up to get from here to there? And then once I get there, how am I going to sit down once I get there? I mean, you've you got to think about it all. And so you think about every step. And so how am I going to accomplish this task? There's some things that I want to do. How am I going to do this? So you have to think every step. And I've made some mistakes. Angie's not in here right now, but she was in the first service with me. And she knows I'm telling the story on myself, all right? So I've made some mistakes. And so uh, about a week or so ago, um, I, it was Saturday night, getting ready to come to church the next day. And so I, I, I told her, we were sitting in the living room watching TV, and I said, I need to get the stool. We have a wooden stool about like this. It's got a little cushion on the top, wood all the way around the cushion on top. I said, I need to get that stool to the dining room. I need to get that to the bathroom so I can sort of get ready for tomorrow. She said, okay. A few minutes passed. We was watching TV, whatever, and, I, and she was talking to Lydia or doing something, and uh, she wasn't interested. In, she, it didn't look to me like she was interested in going to get the stool. And so I thought to myself, I'm just going to do this myself. I didn't say nothing to her. I didn't say nothing to her. I said, I'm just going to do it myself. And so I get on my crutches, and she's talking, and she's, you need to have a sign, I'm good. And so uh, barefooted, walking in the house, you know, like always in the house. And so I come out of the living room, crutching along, and I go into the dining room, and I'm thinking this thing through. Okay, i got to get the stool out of here around the kitchen into the bathroom. So if I take my crutch, and if I put it just a certain way and slide it, it'll go, to, it'll go in that direction. Well, I pulled it, and I went around. As I pulled it this way, the stool came over and hit my pinky toe and the next toe in my good foot. 
And at that moment, I knew three things, okay? In that moment, I knew I should never have done that. I knew Angie's going to make sure that I know that I should not have done that. And I know that that toe is broken. I know it's broken because it hurt worse than anything I'd had done on the ankle. So she came running, and she gave me what for about that. And praise God, it was not broken. Hallelujah. Looked terrible for a day or two, but it was not broken. But I learned some things in that process about making sure that you watch your step and you do what you're supposed to be doing and not what you're not supposed to be, right? And as I was thinking about these things, about making sure you know what you're doing and following your path and doing the things and making sure you know every step, I applied that to some lessons in life. And so here are the lessons is that we as believers, when we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and our purpose is to bring glory to God, then that means that we need to think about every step we take. Amen? Every step we take. How can I bring glory to God in this day? How can I bring glory to God in this step? How can I bring glory to God? How can I honor him with what I'm doing? How can I spotlight who he is through what I'm doing in this task or whatever it may be? Does what I'm doing now, does it point to Jesus? And so when we face the task or we face decisions, when we act, when we react, when we speak, and when we respond, what are our motives? Our motive is to be to bring glory and honor to our creator, right? To bring glory to God. So we must think through each step and remember that our life and every part of our life is to spotlight who God is in us and through us. It's to spotlight God's goodness. It's to spotlight God's grace, to spotlight God's beauty, to spotlight God's fame. We're to bring glory to him. And you know, beloved, Listen, it is hard to bring glory to God when our decisions are based on what we want, right? When we live our lives always seeking to do what we want, it's hard to bring glory to him when it's all about us. It's hard to bring glory to him. Now, let's just get real. It's hard to bring glory to him if you lose your temper. It's hard to bring glory to him if you're cursing. It's hard to bring glory to him if you're impatient. It's hard to bring glory to him if you refuse to forgive or refuse to love. It's hard to bring glory to God if you're sinning against God. The Bible tells us a couple places. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine so that people see who you are and is a believer in Jesus, seeing your good works, and that through all things you glorify your Father in heaven. In 1 Corinthians 6, 20, Paul says, For you were bought at a price. The cross is the price, amen? And you as a believer, you've been bought at a, at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Every part of who you are is to glorify God. Every decision, every act, every word that you utter is to glorify God so that it points people to who he is. Beloved, what are our lives proving to people about who God is? Ouch. 
how we respond, how we speak, how we act, how we react. What does it say to the world about Jesus and who he is to us? Jim Elliott, that great missionary, he said, bring those I contact, he prayed, pray, bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road, but make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. In other words, he's saying, may our lives so bring glory to God that as we come in contact with people, they see Jesus in us, and we're glorifying God in such a way that they are pointed to Jesus and that they, are, that, that they have to make a choice to follow this one who endured the horror for the glory of God and for us. Because as Jesus is the juncture, you must choose Christ. You see, friends, we will either choose to follow Jesus who died for us on the cross and see our purpose as bringing glory to God in all things, or we will reject Christ and one day endure the horror of death, the payment for our sin, the wrath of God, and eternal separation from him. We'll have to endure that ourselves. That great theologian, Yogi Berra, said this, When you come to a fork in a road, take it. And so we must take the fork in the road because Christ on the cross is the fork in the road. Amen? Which way have you chosen? Or which way will you choose? To follow Jesus or endure the horror yourself? He took the horror so we wouldn't have to. And we live to glorify the Father just as he did. Jesus at the glorious juncture is where horror and glory meet. Y'all with me? Amen? Second point is this, is that not only is it where horror and glory meet, but it's where judgment and liberty meet. So let's look at verse 31 again. The first part of verse 31 says, Jesus here is speaking again, thinking of the cross, looking to the cross. In verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Because of what's going to take place at the cross, at the hour that is to come, now is the judgment of this world. And as we think about the judgment that is to come and the, that did come at the cross, we have to sit back and realize that this was a horrific event that took place, but we're grateful for what he did because it's for the glory of God. But it was a judgment that took place upon sin. And so as we sit back and we think about what Jesus did on the cross, where judgment and liberty meet, this judgment, we understand that God, listen, God was not, we come to understand that God was not bluffing in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when he told them that there'd be consequences to sin. That God was not bluffing with that serpent of old, the devil. He was not bluffing when he made the promises of blessing and cursing in the Old Testament. What he said has come true, that there would be consequence to sin. There would be a price to pay for sin. And that judgment comes because of sin. And so we, we talk about sin, and we know that sin is missing the mark of holiness. We know that sin is, is a rebellion against holy God. I like what John Piper said. He, he had some things that, to, to help define what sin is, and I want to share that with you. Y'all ready? Everybody ready to hear this? All right, well, here it is. All right, so he says, sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, 
the power of God not praised. Sin is the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. And it is the ultimate outrage in the universe, he says, that we don't treasure God above everything else. That's sin. And as we think about sin... And what took place in the garden, that there's judgment, there's consequences to sin, and a price to pay. I'm afraid that too often, we just simply thumb our nose at God and live our lives like God was just bluffing. We think that we can get away with our sin because we didn't mean to. We think we can get away with our sin because we'll tell God it was just an accident. Last week, we had our grandbabies with us here <clears throat> for the few days, and on Sunday, they were here with us, Carson, Breland, Brentley, and Christian. Carson is six. And at the end of the 9.30 service, I'd made my way, hobbled my way back there and sat down in the chair, and uh, Carson showed up after his Sunday school class, and he came up and he says, and all the people had already gone through, and Papa says, and Carson says, Papa, can I have a piece of chocolate out of your office? Yeah, bud, we can go get us a piece of chocolate, because... As y'all have heard me say that before, I think, that I have a little jar of chocolate that I give to people when they come in, by the way. Come on by sometime, and I'll give you a piece of chocolate. And so my grandbabies know that, and so Carson says, let's, can I have a piece? I say, yeah, so let's go. So yeah, I had a few minutes, so he and I went back to my office, went back there. He knows what it is, where it is, and so he opened up the top. He pulled out his piece of chocolate. He pulled the little Hershey's uh, Kiss thing out, and he popped it in his mouth and ate his piece of chocolate. He said, Papa, can I have two more pieces, one for Breland and Brindley? I said, yeah, bud, that's absolutely said, all right. So he went and uh, came and did the 11 o'clock service. At the end of the 11 o'clock service, everybody had, had gone out, and, and Carson's there again, and Breland and Brentley, and Carson looks up to me, and he says, Papa, he said, Breland and Brentley want a piece of chocolate. <laughs> he then adds, I accidentally ate theirs too. <laughs> well, as a papa, I knew it won't no accident. Right? And so what do you think I did at that moment? Do you think I put him over my knee and popped him real good on his behind and said, Boy, don't be telling me a lie. You think I did that? No, I didn't do that. I mean, he rebelled against me, against me, me giving him this gift. He, he disobeyed. He broke his word. But as a papa, what did I do? I extended grace and mercy. Right? And I took him back there and and got him a couple more pieces of chocolate, and as far as I know, he gave those to Breland and Brantley. So when you think about this, let's just think about this small little episode, and let's magnify it on a grander scale. As humanity, man in the garden, intentionally rebelled against holy God, and when he did, sin entered into the world, and because of that, consequences came. There was judgment, penalty, death, separation from God. So in the garden, because of what happened there, we know that what Jesus did on the cross, God was not bluffing. The judgment comes. 
But also we see that Jesus is that place where judgment meets liberty. That sin always, with sin, there's always a cost. Y'all follow me? With sin, there's always a cost. Let's think about Carson again for just a second. For Carson, the judgment, the cost, was that it cost me two extra pieces of chocolate. All right? I'm the one who took the hit, not Carson, because it cost me. Now, it's not a big deal. I mean, two little pieces of chocolate, that's nothing, right? Not a big deal for me at all. But I took the hit. I dealt with the cost. But for the Lord... The judgment cost Jesus his life on the cross. Amen? And the liberty, where, ju where judgment and liberty meet, for Carson, liberty was given to Carson because I took the judgment because of the price that I paid of two extra pieces of candy so that he could then have the freedom to go and enjoy giving his sisters each a piece of the candy. And for us, for Jesus, who is our judgment and gives us liberty, Liberty was given to us through the price that Jesus paid so that we could have freedom from the penalty of our sin and we could enjoy real life in Jesus and the privilege to give it away to other people. You see what I'm saying? Jesus is the glorious juncture where judgment and liberty meet. Listen to how one commentator puts it. It was so good, I just want to just quote it. It says, in the cross, God demonstrates his justice. God would be a wicked judge if he excused our wickedness. Now, let's pause right there and say, now, we want God to excuse our wickedness. You know, certainly that's not that bad, but any sin is wicked, right? But then we would think that if he excused all sin, all others, we, we don't want theirs to be excused, just ours. But he would be a wicked judge if he excused wickedness. How could, and here we go again, how could his love for sinners be reconciled with his justice? And the answer is the cross. At the cross, justice and mercy met in the body of Jesus Christ. And in that act, God judged our sins by executing justice on Jesus. This is good news for those who will be saved, but it is bad, no, bad news for those who reject Jesus. Because if you reject Jesus, the cross has sealed your fate. Your rejection of God's perfect sacrifice means that now you will have to bear sin's penalty yourself unless you trust him by faith. You will pay your own judgment price. You will pay the penalty for sin against an infinitely holy God, and it will be paid for an infinite time for all of eternity in a real place called hell. Jesus says at the cross, now is the judgment of this world. It's at the cross where the judgment falls upon Jesus that the world deserves. If you don't trust him by faith, then you have to deal with the judgment yourself. Amen? Another thing he says here, not only is it the judgment of this world, but also he says the ruler of this world will be cast out. So what we find here in that part of the verse is that Satan's ultimate defeat was accomplished on the cross. Let me say that again so you don't miss it. Satan is defeated at the cross. Amen? It was his moment at the cross. It was his moment of bruising from Genesis 3.15. It was at the moment of bruising the heel of Jesus. Satan was bruising the heel of, of Jesus at the cross 
But it was also the same moment that Jesus was crushing the head of the serpent, right? At the cross. And so Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says this, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, in other words, the certificate of debt that was against us, this debt that we owe, having wiped out the certificate of debt that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, this debt that we owe, having nailed it to the cross. That which we owe, the penalty we owe, he nailed it to the cross, and as he does so, verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, in the cross. This is what Jesus did. In a devotional this week, I read somebody said this way, that what Jesus did on the cross is he defanged the devil. Man, that's good, right? He defanged the devil. And so through the death of Jesus, the power of the ruler or the, the prince of this world has been destroyed and the devil has been driven out of office. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says it this way, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise shared in the same, meaning that he became flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So here's what we need to know, that Jesus is saying at the cross, it is the place where horror and glory meet, it's the place where judgment and liberty meet, and that at the cross... He says there in verse uh, 31, the ruler of this world will be cast out means that Satan's power over us as believers is broken. He can no longer, listen, because of what Jesus did on the cross, when you know Jesus by faith, the, the devil can no longer accuse us and demand judgment for our sin because our sins have already been paid for. Amen. The devil cannot accuse us. And as Jesus died for us, he forever dealt with the problem of human sins and removed that ground of accusation. We no longer need to fear death, and we no, need, no longer need to fear being separated from God. The cross is where horror and glory meet. It's where judgment and liberty meet. And we're now free because of what Jesus has done. We're free from sin's power. We're free from sin's penalty. And one day, beloved, we're going to be free from sin's presence. He says in verse 32, he says, Now, and if I, am lift, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And this, he says, signify by what death he would die. He's pointing to the cross again. He's saying if I, he would be lifted up on a cross, and that's where liberty is found. That's where life is found, is there at the cross. And he says, and I will draw all peoples to myself. And we think about drawing. It's not about with a crayon or a pencil. Drawing, we think about a fishing net where you cast a net and you draw it in. Jesus says, if I'm lifted up on the cross, I will draw all peoples to myself. So the cross and what Jesus did there on the cross is what draws people to him for eternal life. It's the cross that makes the difference. It is the cross that draws people to him. Beloved, liberalism does not draw people to Jesus. Politics do not draw people. Morality does not draw people. Education doesn't draw people. Religion doesn't draw people. Tradition doesn't draw. Eloquence doesn't draw. What draws people to Jesus? What is it changes the hearts of people? What is it that makes the eternal impact? What is it that transforms people's very hearts and lives? It is only the cross of Calvary where Jesus died for you and for me. That's what transforms. That's what draws all people. 
He's the glorious juncture, the one who's lifted up and draws all men to himself. Now, don't get this confused to think that, okay, since Jesus did this, now everybody's going to go to heaven. That's not what he means here at all. Everybody's not going to get to heaven because people will reject Christ. If you've never said yes to Jesus, you already have rejected him. You're still living under the wrath of God. But what he's talking about here, all people, he's meaning people of all ethnicities, all cultures, all tribes, all kinds of people. Because remember, from last week, this, this conversation about the hour has come started in verse 20 when the Greeks, the God-fearing Greeks, came to Philip and Andrew asking to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And it began there where Jesus said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. When the grain of wheat falls and dies and the ground brings forth fruit. And so all people, meaning not all people, but all kinds of people, will be drawn to Jesus. Amen? And what we know is that some people will believe in Jesus and some people will reject Jesus. And even Jesus knows that here. Even in verse 37, what we find here uh, through 37 through 43, we see that there's some who believe and some who reject. And in verse 37 it says, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. There's still people then who would not believe, even though they had seen so many things and heard so many things, they still wouldn't believe in Jesus, and that's still the case today as well. You see, this unbelief is an act of rebellion against a holy God who loves you, who created you, and did this for you, for his own glory. And their unbelief, as we think about the people, you know, if we could step into the scriptures and be in this scenario and see what's happening, we would point our fingers to those people who are standing in front of Jesus, who still are not believing, and saying, people, y'all are crazy, right? I mean, look at who he is, and you don't know, but this is what's going to happen, but I'm telling you, this is the guy. You need to know that he is the Messiah, that he is the Lord, he is God, and trust him by faith. But there are people just like that today who have seen and heard enough to make a well-informed decision, but still are blind and deaf to who Jesus is. We see that, that there are people who were deaf to who God is here. Even in verse 29, it tells us here in verse 29 that the, when God spoke in verse 28, I both glorified it and glorified again the Father spoke. Remember that? It says in verse 29, the people who stood by and heard it said that it only thundered. And others said, well, an angel has spoken to him. There are people there who heard the voice of God, but it sounded to them just like thunder. Beloved, today I believe that there's still people who hear the word of God faithfully proclaimed week after week after week, but it's only noise to them. And there are people who are spiritually blind as well. In verse 34, they're they're saying, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? He is right there. He's standing right in front of you. He's the Son of Man. But there are people who are spiritually blind today as well, who've heard the word. Beloved, our prayer should be week after week and day after day. Oh, God, would you open the eyes of the spiritually blind? Would you open the ears of the spiritually deaf people who cannot hear so that they may see and hear that you are who you say you are? Amen? Jesus is the glorious juncture. The hour has come, he says, and he would go to the cross, that place where horror and glory meet, that place where judgment and liberty meet, and then thirdly, where urgency and answers meet. And I promise this point is not as long as the other two. All right? But we see in verse 34, again, that the people are answering, we've heard from the law, Christ remains forever. You say the Son of Man must be lifted up, who is he? And so they're still not getting it, they're still not understanding it. And Jesus knows that. 
And Jesus knows that there would be people who would not believe. But yet he still speaks to them. In verse 35, he says, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So we see here that at the cross, Jesus is, is where urgency and answers meet. And you can sense in Jesus, in his speaking to the people, a sense of urgency. He says, a little while longer... The light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. While you have the light, believe in the light. And so you hear the urgency in Jesus' words. Before darkness overtakes you, walk while you have the light. So he's calling them to a genuine belief in him as Lord and Master. Beloved, you need to understand that the same God who stood before those people and gave them a sense of urgency and answers at the cross is saying the same thing today to people everywhere. That he is still calling people, even people that he knows will not turn to him because there is an urgency to turn to the light and live in the light now. And to turn from darkness that they're in now and will be in forever unless they turn to Jesus. Because Jesus is the answer to darkness. What he does on the cross and at the empty tomb proves that he is who he says he is. And he is still calling people to come to him. To turn from wickedness and turn from sin and turn from darkness and to turn to him. And maybe you're here today and he's calling you. And we see throughout all of the scripture that Jesus' call is to turn. To turn and to come to him. In the Old Testament, we think about Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. The Bible says, as the Lord says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why should you die, O house of Israel? And then here in verse 36, we saw just a few minutes ago, Jesus says, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Turn and come. Verse 46, he says, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Turn from the darkness and turn to the light. Turn to him who is the answer. And then in the, the last book of the Bible, even the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16 and 17, we read these words. Again, turn and come. Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches that I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts Come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. What a God that we serve who loves us, who calls us and tells us urgent that we turn from our sin and turn from our wickedness and turn from the darkness and turn to him who is the life, the truth, the way, the answer. He is Messiah and he is God. Amen. We have this invitation from King Jesus. No one else can say, I'm the light of the world. No one else can say, if you believe in me, you should not abide in darkness. Only Jesus can say that. Because only Jesus went to the cross and endured the horror for the glory of God, took the judgment so that we could have liberty, and can tell us today it's urgent because he's the answer. Amen? He calls you now with a sense of urgency. He alone is the answer, Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully man, the Savior of the world. Two things to do and we're done. Number one, be joyful in Jesus. 
be joyful in Jesus. If you have trusted Jesus Christ by faith, you know that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You've turned from your sin and turned to Jesus Christ, embracing, believing with all your heart that he is who he says he is. God's son died on the cross, rose again bodily from the grave, professing the Lord, and we profess him as the Lord of our lives. Then we know that we have joy in Jesus because we know that Jesus has taken the horror that we deserved upon himself and given us liberty in the judgment he took in our place, right? So you can be joyful in Jesus, but if you don't have Jesus as Lord and Savior life, then you still face the horror. You still face the judgment, and the urgency is for you. But we can be joyful in Jesus when we know him as Savior because he is our salvation. He took our wrath. He has freed us, and we live in light in him, and we're ready now for all of eternity. We started this morning talking about the most significant event in all history is when Jesus went to the cross, and I believe that's so. But I also believe that the most significant event in your life is when you say yes to Jesus. Amen? It changes you. It transforms you. God is at work in you when you say yes to Jesus. So be joyful in Jesus, and secondly, ponder your path. Think about my missteps that I told you that little story, and you think about every step that you take, all right? And ponder your path. Think about every step and every action that you take and ask, does this glorify God? Not asking, is this safe, but does this bring glory to God? Amen? Does it bring glory to God in all that I say and all that I do? Every action, every action, my motivation, everything about me, does it bring glory to God? So be joyful in Jesus and ponder your path. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word this morning. We pray that you would have your way in us to guide us, direct us. Lord, you take the word now that we have heard and proclaimed and apply it to all of our lives, that we would live that out daily. Lord, if there are those here who don't have the joy in Jesus, who don't know you as Lord and Savior, may this be that hour of salvation. Lord, they would say yes to you. God, may you open the spiritually blind eyes May you open the deaf ears that are spiritually deaf. May hear the gospel clearly, have heard it clearly. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, may we find that there's joy in you and know that there's joy in you because of our salvation. Be reminded of that and then ponder our path to let every step be for the glory of God. Lord, we praise you, we exalt you, and we pray that as we come to this invitation, if there are those who need to come and pray, just yielding their hearts and lives to you, that this would be that moment. Taking one of the pastors by the hand or just kneeling here at the altar, just praying for you to have your way in their hearts and lives or just any decision, any prayers anyone has that they need to come, talking to a pastor or just laying before your cross. Lord, we pray that this would be the place and the time. In Jesus' name, amen. You stand as we sing together our hymn invitation.